0: Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2015. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible along with topical conversations on Bible teaching at tgc.org podcasts. You look at Joshua 6.21 that gives it the directions for, for how they're to take out the population of Jericho. That's not nice. But, but no one's claiming it's nice. The only point that needs to be made in the Old Testament's own position is, is it just? And it's saying, yes, it's just, but it's nasty.
1: I'm Nancy Guthrie, and welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible an audio series for people who are looking for more than just a little inspirational thought for the day when we go to the Bible. We're people who find ourselves leading discussions about the Bible, teaching Sunday school, Bible studies. We're people who want to be equipped to rightly, effectively, creatively teach through books of the Bible. And today we get to talk to someone who really knows how to help us rightly, effectively, creatively, and I'll add even humorously, uh, teach through books of the Bible. And our guest today is Dr. Dale Ralph Davis. So thank you for talking with us today. In fact, I come bearing fan letters. Yeah. As I uh, talked to a few people about um, help me teach the Bible, and I told them who I was going to talk to, A couple of my really good friends, they got so excited that I was going to get to talk to Dale Mm -hmm. Ralph Davis. One of them is my friend Jen Wilkin, who is teaching through Joshua right now Mm -hmm. to about 500 women weekly in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And I asked her, so, you know, how, why is it, um, or how is it that Dale Ralph Davis um, has been a help to you? Uh, She said this to me. She said... He's able to enliven even the most mind-numbing texts, infusing them with historical, cultural, and textual context interlaced with his own nimble wit. He gives the teacher permission not to apologize for any part of God's inspired word, communicating an enthusiasm for the backwaters of the Bible that is as refreshing as it is contagious. That's kind of nice. Uh, Another friend... um, She came over to my house yesterday before I came and she gave me a letter I'm going to give to you, but I'm going to read a little bit of it. Everybody can hear what she has to say. She says she's talking about a a while ago, you know, she was getting through the uh, having small children at home. And she said a friend asked her, um, what would you do now if you couldn't fail? And she said immediately, she said, I would teach women's Bible studies. And she says, and there I paused. On the one hand, I felt supremely underqualified. I haven't been to seminary. I'm not trained as a teacher. I've always loved studying God's word. But what if I teach something incorrectly? That's our fear, right? What if I make some sort of gross theological error that's in conflict with who God says he is in his word? But on the other hand, I'm a child of God in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Are the Holy Spirit, God's word, and a clear desire to teach enough for me to start walking in that direction? We decided they were, she writes. And she says to you, so this is where I met you. I went to the first Gospel Coalition Women's Conference. I heard a speaker named Jenny Saltz. I had already settled on Joshua for our fall study, and I found a talk she gave online about teaching Joshua, and she referenced your commentary. She said it was gold. So I ordered it and it became my go-to commentary throughout the study. She says, in fact, I quoted or credited you so often during the course of our Joshua study that I felt you needed to make an appearance at our last meeting. She says, I may have printed off an 8 by 10 copy of your face (laughs) and attached it to a life-size cutout of Elvis. (laughs) She says, as I read that in writing, it sounds a bit creepy, but I assure you it was hilarious and kindly meant. So you didn't know it, but you made an appearance at my friend's Bible study through the book of Joshua in in Nashville recently. So aren't you glad to hear it? (laughs) Oh, Yes. So, Doctor Davis, uh, you had a long you've had a long ministry, both uh, writing, teaching at Reformed Theological Seminary. You were eight years pastors at Woodland Presbyterian Church. Um, you retired, and now you are, as you call it, the preacher of the night <laughs> at, um, or officially entitled minister in residence at First Presbyterian Church, Columbia and spend a lot of time still writing. I think you're probably Mm -hmm. mostly known for a lot of your writing about Old Testament historical books.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Probably. Um, We're going to talk today about the book of Joshua. I've read your, your book, No Falling Words. You wrote in 1996. The book of Joshua comes at a pivotal point in the Old Testament. So perhaps you could orient us as to Where it comes in the Bible and also then where it comes in the story of God's uh, redemptive work among his people...
0: Oh, well, I suppose it's sort of like the the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's kind of a transitional book and so on. It comes after the five books of Moses, as, as it's called. And it begins, of course, I think the key phrase there is after the death of Moses. So mm-hmm. uh, that, that would be a huge critical uh, moment in Israel's history. There's a lot there, there's a lot packed behind that little phrase after the death of Moses um, because, as the three verses before that at the end of Deuteronomy say, there was no one like Moses, uh, he was the greatest servant of God in all the Old testament period um, and, um, and and so this is a critical point is transition to to, to new leadership you can um, I don't want to psychologize things too much but you could imagine uh, probably a little bit of the misgivings perhaps of Joshua as as following in the wake of Moses and that kind of leadership so nobody
1: wants to follow a big popular leader right, right? that's pretty intimidating yeah.
0: right so so there there you are and then you've got you've got everything that's been being prepared for and of course the keynote uh, is in chapter 1 verse 2 uh, when Yahweh speaks of the land that I'm giving to the to the sons of Israel this was uh this is the part of the place, uh, I call it the, the the aspect of the promise. This is the place element of the promise that uh, Yahweh promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, to your seed I will give this land, and now that's about to, to assume and receive its substantial fulfillment. Uh, so that's where it is and And so it looks back it looks back to the promise to Abraham, it comes after the crisis of Moses' death, and uh, actually it looks forward, you might say uh to um something like uh which have in Habakkuk two fourteen uh the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea this mm. this land is yahweh's it's not just Israel's inheritance but it's yahweh's turf yes. and and it's going to become more than just his turf is going to become more than just Canaan, but it's going to, to embrace the whole earth. So that's kind of uh, a general Yeah, you're talking
1: about the land, and I, the land occurs over 2,000 times in the Old Testament. This this understanding of the promise of the land you referred to, to Abraham, and then if we had traced through the books of Moses, we would see that, of course, but then for for 400 years they're going to be away from the land.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that they've been brought out of Egypt. Uh, at the at the book of Deuteronomy, they're on the edge of the land. And Moses is giving those final instructions uh, before they head over into the land. Talk to us a little bit more just about the significant what, what do we need to understand about the land?
0: there 's obviously a very physical element about it, because land is just full of dirt mm-hmm. and and so on so there 's always that aspect it 's always a rootedness but i think i I think um, i I connect it in part with with uh, jesus words in John fourteen about verse three. I go to prepare a place for you. Um, sometimes we often um, uh, fly off to heaven at that point. Uh, yes. And I'm not sure we ought to. I think the, the promise of the land, the land component uh, in, in Old Testament and Old Testament theology is is meant to say God's always concerned that his people have a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, that matters to him, and and especially that they have a secure place. Psalm twelve, Micah four, verse four: Every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and so on. They, uh, Yahweh seems to be very concerned that his people have that a rootedness, and 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 also that that they be that it be a secure. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. I know there 's the exile and so mm-hmm. on, and everything that gets disrupted, and so on, but that seems to be persist clear through and I, I think we need to be careful that we not um, mm, spiritualize that away when we get to say the New Testament you know uh, Jesus picked up on psalm thirty seven the meek shall or the, the meek shall inherit the earth. Uh, and uh, whatever your eschatology is, whether you have a place for a millennial earth or whether you go straight to the new heavens and the new earth, it's in the new heavens and the new earth. So there's, a, there's always um, there's always turf involved. Uh, we're going to have resurrection bodies, and you don't float through a bunch of cool whip and ether with resurrection bodies. You have to have a place for them. And so this there's is there's just something that, that roots, I think, our faith throughout and keeps us from making um well getting too all fired spiritual about Mm -hmm. things sometimes
1: i'm thinking about that how that is the case throughout the whole of the scriptures i mean the story of god's kingdom begins there in eden of very Mm -hmm. much a place god's people in his place Mm -hmm. and here in joshua god's people are going to go into his land, this land of milk and honey, which is mm-hmm. reminiscent, really, of the garden. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you've talked about, you know, heading into the new heavens and the new earth, which is going to be that ultimate place of security. And you don't want to over-spiritualize, but the fact is, where is God's place now? How are are you and I as believers and the people that we're teaching, what does it mean now to be God's people in God's place, is there a place?
0: Yes, I think there is. I, I suppose, in in part, you could say part of that place is is uh, in in the body of Christ, of of um, Jew and Gentile believer being in one body, and so on. Um, but um, I, I I guess um, I guess I would not. I, I wouldn't want to reduce it all to that. Um sometimes I think we can tend to do that. Um so I would still want to keep the 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 future element of that promise in front of us as well.
1: Of this whole earth being in a sense holy land. Yeah. In which his people will dwell securely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, if you're getting ready to teach the book of Joshua, you've got to decide in a sense how you're going to organize your time. Can you give us a basic overview uh, of the structure, the bones Mm -hmm. of Joshua, you know, sections that are going to help us decide as teachers, how are we going to break this down? What are the major elements of okay. the
0: book? Uh, yeah, we can do that in a couple, two, three different ways. So let's take the, well, let's back away from the whole thing and take the biggest chunks uh, to begin with. I think one thing that helps when you're going into a book is to find out where the hinge is. Yes. And the hinge in Joshua is almost at the end of the book in chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. That's where you have a little summary. In that that really encapsulates all of chapters one to twenty one. I, I won't read it here, but the it, it's uh, chapter twenty one forty three to forty five uh, in the Hebrew text. Uh, the little word all occurs six times. Uh, all the promises mm-hmm. uh, came to pass. All that God uh, they took all the land, etc. Uh, so it's a very emphatic summary, and and as I said, it sums up all of chapters one through twenty one. And then you so it's as if the the writer of Joshua has this big black magic marker and he swipes it across the page at the end of chapter 21 and the the line is three verses thick. Hmm. And then after that, 22 to 24... You, you have three chapters there, and at the first part of each chapter, it indicates that there is uh, an assembly of the people of God, So, uh, or an, or a substantial number of them. So, uh, in chapter 22, 23, 24, you have three assemblies of the people of God, and the, the concern there in those chapters is this basic first commandment loyalty. What do—you must serve Yahweh and no other, and I could substantiate that, but you can go through that and pick up the the text in all three chapters that focus on that so so basically chapters 22 to 24 are talking about the response to what god has done in chapters 1 to to 21 i I put it like this what at at the end of chapter 21 there what the lord wants wants to do is to have you stand up and sing great is thy faithfulness Mm. Uh, what faithfulness well you look back at the assurance he gives his people and, and leaders in verse in chapter one you look at the grace he shows uh, Gentile harlot mm-hmm. in chapter two you you notice the power he exercises in in uh, wiping out the obstacle of the Jordan River in three and four uh, the the victories he gives in chapters six and eight and ten and eleven uh, the the uh, warnings he gives in chapters thirteen and eighteen to to stir them up to zeal etc but all of that uh, you, you see, you see Yahweh's grace and faithfulness. So He wants you to stand and sing, "Great is Thy faithfulness." But then, after after chapter twenty-one, chapters twenty-two to twenty-four, He wants you to respond to that. So He wants you to sit down and sing, "Oh Jesus, I have promised to serve Thee to the end." Mm. So that you to could say that, to it, "Yes, yes." And, and so the you could say, "Joshua's a two-point sermon." <laughs> uh, the first part. Uh, about eighty percent of it is uh, the record of Yahweh's faithfulness. Uh, second point is the responsibility of Yahweh's people in that chapters twenty-two to twenty-four, uh, and and uh, always that has the the typical biblical emphasis: uh, a grace, then response, hmm. grace been obligation that's the way the biblical pattern moves so that's that's the big uh that doesn't solve all your questions but it tells you um it, it tells you what's going on in, in the whole thing
1: the beginning of the book of joshua yes joshua is the new leader and how would you explain what he is charged to do as this new leader that we see there at the very beginning what is he supposed to do
0: well, I think he's he's charged to to um, do what Yahweh had promised uh, to to Abraham um, and and to fulfill uh, the work that Moses had had begun and so on. Um, it starts out there in chapter one and again. Uh, when you're dealing with a whole book, one of the first things you want to do is to read the preface. So, obviously, uh, reading chapter one in biblical books is usually pretty important. It can give you a lot of clues. Uh, sort of like if. Uh, if my, I have four older brothers, and uh, if they uh, had ever written a cookbook, which they haven't, but if they did, uh, it would have no chicken recipes in it at all. Uh, and someone, if they would read this imaginary cookbook, would be very disturbed. Why aren't there any chicken recipes in it? Uh, What they would need to know is that they probably explained that in the preface, uh, (laughs) where somewhere they would have said, you know, when we were growing up, our dad used to come home. Some farmer in his congregation gave him a chicken. He brought it home in a burlap bag in the trunk of the car. That meant that it had to be, I had, I had to chop its head off, and then you know who had to pluck out, uh, had to scald it and pluck out feathers, etc., and we just got turned off about chicken. Now, that didn't <laughs> happen to me because I, it was before my time, but, but they they would explain they don't eat chicken to this day. They don't need it, and they don't want it. Uh, so if they did a cookbook, it wouldn't have any chicken recipes, and they would explain that, but it would be in the preface, and so uh, you'd have to read the preface to understand that. Now, uh, that's what you have with with uh, Joshua. One, I think you've got you've got the preface, and you've got something very important told you there. Since after the death of Moses, and you have this leadership transition, and right there in the first nine verses, I think it's telling you something really important. It's saying, for one thing, there's there's something um, uh, there, there's something that that um, uh, comes long before precedes Moses. Uh, that's the promise to Abraham, you know, it's it's the land that I'm giving to you that I swore to you. Well, that takes you back to Genesis 12. Uh, So Moses is dead. Of course, we wonder if Moses is really dead because (laughs) Moses is referred to 11 times in Joshua 1. But nevertheless, it says he's dead. So um, you have this promise that precedes Moses, and Yahweh says to Joshua, rise, cross over the jordan etc not not wait uh not put it on hold but but go on so uh, that's telling you that that um uh, the kingdom of god and god's cause is is not built on great personalities great as moses was but on great promises so the promise abides even though The person, the the premier leader, has died. And then it tells you something more because you get down to about chapter 1, verse 5, and it tells you that, that there's something that outlasts Moses where he said to Joshua, "'As I have been with Moses,' I will be with you. I will never let go of you, and I will never abandon you. So, uh, there, there is. uh, In one sense, you don't need Moses. You don't. This isn't demeaning Moses. It's saying, but but it's saying that you, in a sense, in which you don't need Moses because you have Moses God, and His present Yahweh's presence abides even when Moses is is out of the way. All of which, uh, if you get. You know, as you slide off your the root, the, the the hermeneutical roof, you might say, of Joshua one, you catch your pants on a nail, uh, and and it gives you pause, and and it's saying to us, uh, be careful that you don't make idols out of servants. Uh, Moses was a great servant. There was no one like him. Uh, if we had time, we could support that. There was no one like him in in uh, the Old Testament period? Really. Uh, but but don 't make an idol out of servants don 't get so latch onto them uh, god 's promise and god 's presence abide even when they 're gone so I think there 's some instructability there, but that sets uh, i think a tone for the whole for the whole book right at the first right after this
1: first chapter we 're immediately introduced to some of the people living in the land as we, as we meet Rahab. And mm-hmm. that really begins a part of Joshua that, frankly, a lot of people have a problem with. Mm-hmm. And I actually think I'm seeing it even more and more. There are so many progressive voices, in, um, even amongst evangelicals mm-hmm. today, Mm-hmm. that find this whole idea of somehow God sanctioned what they might say, genocide or all of these innocent people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've heard a couple of different people talk about uh, how to approach these parts of the old Testament. One guy said, well, we have to look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And for the, for him, that means this doesn't seem like something the Jesus of the new Testament would do. So this can't really be what God Wanted. Or I think about another person who's recently written a, a book about the Bible that basically says, well, this was this was the Old Testament. You know, the Israelites are basically justifying somehow if they say God told them to go into the land and devote all of these people to destruction, that's just that can't be accurate uh, because that's yeah. immoral. Um, so as we're teaching through the book of Joshua, we have to realize we've got people that we're teaching to who are likely hearing these voices and they're Mm -hmm. coming with some very significant questions about the morality Mm
0: -hmm. or
1: ethic, uh, of what it certainly seems pretty clear here that God is commanding. Um, so Mm -hmm. talk to us about that. How, how do we, how do we teach through, um, God's instructions that part of them taking the land is going to be destroying the Canaanites? Mm
0: Mm-hmm right well and a, and a little more aggravated now uh, because of of uh what you have doing with the Islamic state and so on yes. and that sort of thing and they said, oh, this is this jihad uh and just with a different uh flip to it uh and so on well that one that one thing you're not going to get around uh is this whole matter i mean god God either revealed and told Israel to do that there was either a divine revelation or there wasn't uh the, and then that's going to be debated. People are going to deny that and so on. So, you, you know, that's, that's a whole different debate. But um, what I think is important to do is to look at what the Old Testament itself says about the conquest. Uh, I still call it a conquest. I know some people call it settlement Mm -hmm. because they have different presuppositions about the nature of biblical history and so on. But I I think it's a conquest. Uh, But I think you you have to look at what the Old Testament itself is saying. Uh, That's where you begin. Uh, we we always have these problems in Old Testament studies of beginning with well there are uh, three or four views among scholars yes. etc. No no don't begin there. Begin with what the biblical data itself says, and then you can decide whether you're going to agree or disagree with it. But start there. I think there are three elements with the conquest thing. Uh, the one the one is what I call the patience God shows. And that comes from Genesis 15, 16, where the Lord said to Abraham, um, look, uh, your people uh, are going to be uh, slaves in, in another country for 400 years. They're, they're not, they'll come back. To this land in the fourth generation. And in the context there, that was calling a generation 100 years, but 400 years uh, for the iniquity of the Amorites, which is the blanket term for the residents of Canaan. Uh, the, iniqui- the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So, in other words, the, the point is, as Calvin basically said, God is giving the Amorites 400 years to repent. There's a sense in which their guilt has not reached, you might call it the breaking point or the judgment point. And so, uh, that's, that's a matter of the patience that God's showing. He's giving them time. That's one element. The second element is, um, the, the depravity that God abhors. And I think you get a good taste of that in Leviticus 18. Most of Leviticus 18 is not having to do with ceremonial stuff, but with moral stuff. And it says, begins by saying to Israel, look, I don't want you, uh, to be, uh, like the other nations, like Egypt or like the Canaanites. Uh, you're supposed to be different. Uh, you're to reflect my holiness, and so you're to have a counter-cultural sexual ethic, basically. And then he takes them through what they're not supposed to do, uh, particularly sexually. Now, all forms of incest are forbidden. Homosexuality is forbidden. Um, uh, bestiality, uh, adultery, and so on. But he runs runs through all of that. And he said, "It's because of this that that the land's going to vomit out such a it's, vivid word, right? It, it's it's residents and so on. So don't go there." Uh, which, which tells you, uh, that, the, these were, these, these were elements, the, the, the offenses that are mentioned in Leviticus 18, these were elements of what were true of the Canaanites. Uh, so, um, uh, I think what, what's important to see there that when you think of the Canaanites, these are not basically, um, uh, <laughs> Good, reasonable, um, um, uh, kind uh, folks just trying to do the best they can. But rather, if you look at Leviticus 18, no, the Canaanites were a depraved, perverted, sex crazed culture that thought that both their brains and their worship resided between their legs. Now, that's, and, and therefore, that, that comes under God's judgment. So that's that element of the depravity that God abhors is a second element. And then you come to a third element, and I think that comes up uh, in Deuteronomy 9, about verses 4 to 6, um, which which um, has to do with the instrument God uses. He's going to use the Israelites, but he tells Israel in that text three times it's not because of your righteousness that you're going in to take the land. Two times, he says, it's because of the wickedness of these nations, which means that Israel is going to be Yahweh's appointed instrument of judgment uh, on, on the Canaanites for their depravity. Uh, so I think that's the third element. Uh, the, so what you have is a, a patient God, uh, giving time to repent uh, and yet um, bringing judgment on a a perverted, depraved uh, a culture and uh, on ungodly Canaanites. And he uses ungodly <laughs> Israelites as the instrument of his judgment. Now, you have that in other places in Old Testament history. You have uh, Babylon being used to judge Judah, for instance, in Habakkuk, where you have Assyria being used to bring judgment on Israel in Isaiah and a certain. So, so that's but but seems to me that's that's what the Old Testament is saying is taking place in the conquest. Well, now, what's that say? Well, that says in the Old Testament's own view, this is an act of the just judgment of God. On um, um, human depravity and sin, uh, it's a matter of justice in the Old Testament's own view. That doesn't mean people will agree with that view, but that's what the Old Testament says. Okay, so so that's where I think we we begin. We we, we start with we start with that, um, and that doesn't mean that um, that, that that it's uh, clean. Or that it's sanitary, or that it's pleasant—only that it's just. I mean, you look at Joshua six twenty-one that gives the the directions for for how they're to take out the population of Jericho. It's not nice, but but no one's claiming it's nice. The, the only point that needs to be made in the Old Testament's own position is: is it just? And it's saying yes, it's just, but it's nasty. Uh, so. Hmm. You know that's the
1: the phrase used throughout Joshua is devoted to the Lord for destruction mm-hmm. Talk to us about that
0: phrase well that's that harem um, of view uh devoted to destruction and um uh, you know the the um The spoil of Jericho, for instance, as a first place that they conquered was to was all to go into the Lord's treasury. It wasn't to be taken for Israel if any of it was to be Israel was not to take any of it for themselves at that point. Uh, So it's been. Yeah. But but if you're if you're turned over to the Lord, if it's not if it's people and not stuff. uh, Yeah, then then that's that's being consumed in in judgment um, and and that's uh, that's what it was for uh, not not for not for uh, peoples or nations beyond Canaan but within Canaan those people were to be devoted uh, to destruction now you have of course a sample of an exception to that in yes, chapter two uh, where where Rahab uh, appeals and flees, essentially, acknowledges Yahweh and, and flees and asks for refuge uh, under Yahweh's people and, and for protection for her and her greater household. Uh, so, uh, you know, there, there, was, there was a way, you might say, to avoid judgment.
1: Yes, what uh, is that way?
0: Well, uh, that as we
1: see in the person of Rahab, yeah. Why is she? Saved? I mean, if we're mm-hmm. if we're looking at this story as a complete outsider, we go, okay. Here's mm-hmm. this very evil. You've described how ungodly mm-hmm. they are, mm-hmm. and here's this character. She is. She runs an inn for mm-hmm. prostitutes, and so yep. she's a woman.
0: Yep. She's
1: a prostitute. So if we're looking at if we were going to ladder out the evil of the Canaanites, I mean, she's going to be pretty low. Yep. On that route um, ladder. I mean, if yep. we're thinking like. If if God's gonna save anybody amongst the Canaanites, we probably wouldn't pick her out mm-hmm. for it. And uh, maybe mm-hmm. that's partly the point, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, talk to us about Rahab.
0: Well, um, I think that's that's partly the point uh is that here's uh, a pagan, uh she's a harlot, uh and yet um, and yet uh her faith is at the very center of that story. Um, uh, Since you brought it up, (laughs) we'll dive into it. Uh, The writer obviously wanted to tell us about this story because if you – if you look at the end of chapter 1, at the beginning of chapter 3, you could slide chapter 2 that has to do with Rahab out of the text. And chapter 3 would connect with chapter 1 seamlessly, and you wouldn't know it was um, – uh you had missed it. Uh Which means uh, the writer deliberately put it in yes. there because he wanted the us to see story of it. this
1: one Canaanite. Yes.
0: Yeah. And, and I think it's specifically to underline the grace of Yahweh that's available, in this case, uh, to, to Rahab. But the, the point that he's making with Rahab, and this is where I think Bible study groups can get on the wrong side of the screw, um, is he wants you to hear Rahab's truth. Um, you get any Bible study group going on this, and you read through Joshua too, and one of the first questions going to come up: <sighs> Rahab lied She's to the Jericho liar. cops, you know, and then <laughs> and then you say now. Uh, going to World War II and I'm not trying to belittle this but you know the analogy seems to be always raised oh but if the Nazis came to your door what <laughs> would you say well the writer of Joshua 2 isn't too concerned about that because he put right in the middle of the text and I don't have time to take us through that but right in the middle of the text so verses 8 to 14 so in, in the middle of the chapter the, uh, Joshua 2 is structured like a sandwich and verses 8 to 14 are like the meat of the sandwich uh, I could take you to the lettuce parts and the bread part but no need to do that he put that right in the middle and you get especially at verses 10 to 13 and you have three elements of her faith she mm-hmm. hears the testimony of what God has done uh, she confesses that Yahweh is the only God there in heaven above and earth below she comes to a conviction about Yahweh and then in verses 12 and 13 I think it is she seeks refuge in Yahweh so swear to me that you'll protect me and my family. Etc. So you, that's really what you have in in biblical faith. You hear the testimony about Yahweh. You form a conviction about Yahweh, but it doesn't stay with the conviction. This is not just saying certain things are true, but then it drives you to seek refuge in Yahweh. So is Yahweh going to bring judgment through Israel? Yes, He is. What do you do? Well, you seek refuge. I think Tozer once put it this way. You seek refuge from God in God, and that's what she's doing. So there's a sense in which when when she and her family and relatives are gathered in her house with the scarlet cord in the window, The the scarlet cord doesn't point to the cross of Jesus. Uh, 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 That's, I think, a misconnection. I think the scarlet cord's there uh, like a uh, a phosphorescent orange vest on a a, uh, traffic or road worker uh, so Israel can identify Rahab's house. But there is a sense in which that does point to the work of Christ. In that, uh, here you've got Rahab's house, and you've got these people gathered in it. What do you have? her house is a safety zone in the midst of judgment it's like noah's ark it's like Mm -hmm. uh, being behind the blood smeared door passover Uh, yahweh's judgment is coming but here is this safety zone uh, where you can be preserved from the judgment of god well what's that but uh, in principle the same thing that you have with the work of jesus at the cross and what the New Testament calls propitiation. Uh, he, 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 is the satisfi- he satisfies the wrath of God, but he's the one that takes the wrath and the judgment of God so that we're safe from it. It's the, the same sort of thing. Uh, so I think there's a connection between Joshua 2 and the cross of Jesus, but it's not through the scarlet cord as such. I think you have to look at it a little bit deeper there.
1: Rahab gives us, as non-Jewish people, a lot of hope. Doesn't Mm -hmm. she? I mean, she's this early old Testament picture of really who the people of God are. Mm -hmm. Lest anyone think it's always been a matter of blood. Mm -hmm. Rahab makes this clear. It's a matter of belief Mm
0: -hmm. in God's word. She's,
1: I love it. What she says in verse eight, when she says, I know the Lord has given you the land. So here's this thing. The people of Israel hardly have enough faith to believe that God's really going to give them Mm
0: -hmm. the land of
1: Canaan. And yet she has heard about what God's done. And she believes it's really true. She takes right. God at his word right. and, as you said, finds refuge in him. What, a, what an incredible opportunity. I think especially in context, we were talking about the struggle that many people have with the judgment coming down. Seems to me most significantly, this story makes sure that we understand in the midst of judgment that God provides a, a way of mercy. There's mm-hmm. mercy In the Mm -hmm. midst of judgment for anyone
0: Mm -hmm.
1: who will put their faith in what God has said and take hold of it and seek to find refuge in it. I mean, it's it's, what a beautiful picture of the gospel.
0: Yeah, you can you see uh, in Joshua too. you see a what you might call a Gentile remnant reserved right there and then of course Rahab makes the first page of the New Testament as well so. pretty nice yes <laughs> yeah.
1: all right so then as we move through Joshua uh, Joshua is getting ready they, they cross the Jordan very significant once again similar to the Red Sea in mm-hmm. terms of this Jordan opening up for them to walk across um, they have their first Passover there then they come to this first well, perhaps first we should go to what happens to Joshua before he gets to Jericho, which is he goes to kind of survey, mm-hmm. make a battle plan, I suppose, and he meets right. up with someone very significant. Right. What do we, what do we want to teach our people about this um, character, person? I'll let you tell us who this person right. is, is, commander of the Lord's armies, in Joshua five.
0: Right, uh, chapter five, verses thirteen to fifteen, and and of course that's the, the. Uh Preface of the of the whole thing, uh, and, and you have to admire Joshua's gall because uh, he, he saw him and so on, and he just up fronted him and and uh, asked me, "You for us or for our enemies?" <laughs> a, good, <laughs> and, a seemingly and, significant and, uh, question, you know. He's uh, on. He gets the answer, "No." Uh, <laughs> you know, you take your sandals off your feet, place your standing as holy. I think one of the things I, there there are a lot more that could be said about it. I think one of the matters there is it's sort of a repetition of the burning bush. With Moses in Exodus three, but but there's a sense in which uh, you, you know we don't try to coerce Yahweh to be on our side, but but rather we acknowledge Him as 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 sovereign and submit to His sway. Um, one one writer, I think it was H. L. Ellison, in a little expository unit when he was trying to apply this, said we're we tend to be more interested in guidance. Than in a right relationship with the guide, and it seems to me that that's part of what chapter five, verse thirteen to fifteen, is saying. We we, we want to well now how, how do we go about getting at Jericho? No 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 no. Uh, you're getting ahead of yourself. Um, take your shoes off your feet. You need to acknowledge who's in charge here. Um, well, we we tend to reverse uh, things there. Um, If you're teaching
1: through Joshua, how important or unimportant is it? for us to identify this as perhaps a Christophany?
0: Well, um, well um, I, I think it's, that's a legitimate I have that written in my uh, margin with a question mark after it. There uh, is a question which, mark, it. Huh? Which probably means, I'm not sure, maybe. Certainly it's a manifestation of Yahweh or Yahweh's uh, agent. Uh, I would have no problem uh, calling it a Christophany. It's just I don't know whether I can prove it or not. You know, So if you were standing I, up
1: teaching, you wouldn't you would say that's a possibility. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't come down hardline. That is.
0: I probably wouldn't, but but I have a hunch that it is. It's just that if I can't prove something straight out uh, to my own satisfaction, I, I'm I'm hesitant to to affirm it uh, too too readily. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. but that's that's very very critical, I think, of the whole. The, the whole assault on Jericho to see that is, as as it, it's sad that chapter division in a way yes is the way it is. You you could wish that chapter five verse thirteen was really chapter six verse one. It would help. Yes, so uh, I think we could mentally. See. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. getting
1: ready to lead them in, and the my. Uh, heading to chapter six as the fall of Jericho. So this commander is going to lead them in with this, but he gives them a very strange, they have a very strange battle strategy (laughs) that we've never seen anywhere else, which is this marching around in silence. Whereas, you know, that ancient warfare was so Mm -hmm. generally full of noise and intimidation. And Mm -hmm. this isn't like that at all.
0: Uh, What must it have
1: been like to, be the Canaanites inside those walls, mm-hmm. thinking this yeah. is strange what's happening. So right. as we're teaching what happens here, um, what are, do you think are the important things we need to get across in our teaching of this first very significant battle in Jericho?
0: Well, I think with Joshua 6, with with the Jericho episode, I think there are maybe two elements. One is, you know, the, I think about nine times the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned. So that's, that obviously is the sacred box that contains the Ten Commandments. It's the very symbol of Yahweh's presence and so on. And it's central in those circuits around the city and so on. Uh, it's, it's almost as central as it is in chapters three and four of going through the Jordan. Uh, so so uh, clearly it's Yahweh's leadership that's that's at the heart of this uh, first assault and um, and apparently there are priests blowing on these horns and so on, but there's no racket from the people. They're absolutely silent. It was very strange, uh, and it goes that way until Joshua says, until I tell you, you don't shout until I tell you to shout. I think that's in... in um, um, Finally comes in verse sixteen I think there, there there are two things there one one stress is the passivity of the people now uh, it 's not that they don 't have to fight uh, joshua twenty four talks about them uh, fighting at jericho uh, but but it 's how are they going to get into this because chapter six verse one says jericho was zipped up tight as a bug. Uh, how are they going to get in there so on so um, but the way it's described, they're circling around it, and the only thing they'll do is shout at the signal. I think it's trying to make the point that this, especially this signal first episode, Yahweh is the one who's going to give them access to it, he and no one else. There are some times when God puts his people into a situation where he does not allow them to put forth their efforts that's not a that's not a a rule every time, and so on, and we shouldn't have to take time to prove that, but there are times when when, as it were, he makes sure that they realize that they didn't contribute anything. It seems to me this is one of them. the walls fall down at the shout shall- mm-hmm. in their place I not mean they just Flopped over uh, but but they, they crumpled up in their place, there were fissures and so on made in the wall, and so they got access to the city and so on it could and could go on and fight then and conquer the city but but uh, it was all yahweh 's doing to get them in there and and I think that's that 's why the stress on. How passive the people are in one sense—they do the marching, but that's that's all. It's very much like what you have, I think, in Genesis six to eight, in the flood narrative, because there you have Noah. Uh, and if you notice in the the text, Noah never talks. Uh, now he talks toward the end of chapter nine after the flood and so on. But that's different in the flood narrative. Noah never talks. He just does what Yahweh tells him to do and so on. But he's quiet. <laughs> I think I think there's a reason for that. It's trying to say um, Noah isn't. The operator it's not here, not really. Yeah. And I think it's the same sort of thing in, in uh, Joshua 6. So I think that's one emphasis. And then the other emphasis is uh, the stress on the necessity of obedience uh, because, and, and it's almost humorous. I don't know if I can explain it um, uh, properly or not. But, you know, uh, Joshua says, uh, you, you just wait. You don't say anything till I tell you to shout. And then in verse 16, he says to shout, for he always giving you the city. And then he goes into a three verse sermonette. On, on stressing uh, all the stuff that's devoted to the Lord, uh, only Rahab's to be preserved, and uh, you must keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, and so on and so forth. Uh, all the silver and gold etc. are holy to Yahweh, there to go in the treasury. And then verse 20, so the people shouted. I can't imagine that when he said, had them all geared up, and he said, shout, that they then kept silence and listened for three verses while he went into this spiel of reemphasizing, underscoring, and putting in bold print how they're not to partake of any of the spoils. I think uh, I think think Wildster in his commentary uh, points this out, and I think obviously what happened, uh, the scripture doesn't have to tell us everything in the precise order it happened. It just has to tell us what's true. And I think probably what you have in verses 17 to 19 is what Joshua had already emphasized with Israel before, but but in recounting the story in the text, the writer put verses 17 to 19 in there as... It, well, it's almost disappointing. You know, he says he says, shout, and then you have this extended exhortation and you're wanting to hear them shout um I, I think it's just a way of saying this is more important than the destruction of jericho's walls and 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 you'll see that stress and obedience and how important that is when you get to chapter seven because aiken blown it.
1: it yeah i mean right so. away going back to what you were talking about earlier about the unrighteous people the very wicked people and that the children of Israel were not a righteous people. Right. They right. have their own wickedness. I mean, that's immediately evident right here mm-hmm. from the start, right? Right. right. After this yeah. first great victory, then chapter point. seven, but the people of Israel broke faith and regarded to the, mm-hmm. to the devoted things. And we have right. immediately this picture, uh, uh, you know, if we'd been sitting here reading the Bible, we would have read through, exodus and leviticus and numbers and we would see they're, mm-hmm. gosh you know they're so faithless right so right. faithless yeah and finally he's going to give them the land we would expect this to just be a high point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh he's, right. he's now they have the land and he's given them this incredible victory from the start and here we are this right but right. we're but we're faithless yep.
0: yeah
1: what do we right. do with this story of 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 what happens in this sin of, of Achan. Why do you think this is here?
0: I think it's, I think it's there um, uh, partly to say um, if, if you want to enjoy the benefits of Yahweh's presence among you, you have to deal with open and public sin among the people of God. You really have a disciplinary procedure among God's people. And and uh, Yahweh makes it uh, uh, pretty plain unless you just, uh, you know, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Chapter seven, verse 12. So everything (laughs) if they're going to enjoy the presence and the and and the provisions of God, they've got to take care of sin in their midst. It can't be uh, it can't be ignored.
1: So we read about this incredible victory that God has accomplished as Jericho is defeated. Then we read about their failure, that they didn't devote everything to destruction. And really, that's kind of a beginning of a pattern somewhat of uh, not really taking all the land that God has given them and not completely devoting the Canaanites to destruction is is that the pattern throughout Joshua and what is what do we take from that
0: right it doesn't become as quite as pronounced in Joshua as as you see the results more in Judges chapter one but you do see it in Joshua and and um, uh, the 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 pattern in in Joshua that you you have especially in chapters five to twelve the the key word is taking the land or sometimes translated capture they took this city, that city, and, and that, that doesn't mean that they settled it or occupied it. It just means that they conquered it, and, and uh, oftentimes in a kind of a campaign, but they didn't settle it. They were to go back and to possess it later, and, and then, of course, as you mentioned, Nancy, you get into chapters 13 and following, uh, they're to divide up the land. And after the blitzkrieg, you might say, you have the, the cut through the middle of the country. Then you have the southern campaign in chapter 10. You have the northern campaign, chapter 11, and so on. And then they're to nail down, the, the individual tribes are to nail down their inheritance. Well, you get to chapter 13 or or uh, even more, to chapter 18, and some of the tribes haven't even had the, their land divided up. They haven't taken the initiative. They're just, you know, how long are you going to be uh, sluggish about you know uh, taking care of this, so they're not following up on it, and that's that's already uh, clear in in the book of Joshua. Uh, in fact, I think I think that's one way that you can look at a whole glob of material in Joshua and see how the writer was making his own point. Because when you get to let's take chapter fourteen to. Well, we'll just take 17. We won't take all the whole glob. But the 14 to 17 uh, in uh, the the inheritance west of the Jordan, you've got Caleb uh, as a as a as a stellar example of of a model of faith in chapter 14, verses 6 to 15. Then in chapter 15, you have the the uh, uh, cities and so on of the allotment of Judas for 63 verses. And And then in chapter 16 and 17, most of 17, you have the inheritance or the towns of Ephraim and Manasseh. And then at the end of chapter 17, verse 14 to 18, you have this... This uh, kind of a whining response of the Joseph tribes—that is, Ephraim and Manasseh—we need to have more land. Uh, the Canaanites are too strong. We can't. We can't nail down our land, etc. But it's a response of hesitancy and fear. Now, what's interesting is—I that, mean, that's that's probably the driest part in one sense of the Book of Joshua. You've got to get a good commentary. You've got to get your Bible atlas. You've got to try to make sense of uh, the tallies of the of the towns, etc etc and so on and it's tough going through but it's interesting the way the writer packages the dry goods because from 14 6 to 15 he has caleb and there are about several elements of his faith that he expresses, namely that he was used to standing alone, as he did in Numbers 13 and 14 with Joshua, um, and, and he, he's basing himself on uh, the promises of Yahweh to give him his portion. And especially, he says, now give me Hebron because the, the sons, the Anakim are supposed to be there. It's especially difficult project, so give it to me. It's almost as if his faith makes him want to take this on because it's a it's a tougher assignment. So uh, that's where you have, that. that's at the preface of this. Um, then at the end of it, in chapter 17, 14 to 18, you have this, Hesitancy, fearful, cowering response of the Joseph tribes. It's as if the writer's saying, now which model are you going to follow? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's very uh, dry stuff in a way. Yeah, I was going to say. But <laughs> the beginning and the ending is, rich. is, is where he's, he's setting it up. Now, where are you going to come down? And and especially that ending at the end of Chapter 17, it's, it, it reminds me of this guy. It was um, a fellow by the name of Gatlin who was uh, in a Detroit neighborhood, and he came along... And, and saw uh, the police there showing the, the neighborhood children uh, uh, some of their computer equipment on their patrol cars. And uh, so this guy came along. He was twenty, about 21 years old, and he, he, he said he wanted to see how it worked, too. So he said, well, give us a, give us a piece of uh, identification. So he gives him his driver's license. They put it into the computer and so on. And uh, they arrest him because <laughs> the information that it coughed up showed that he was one. Wanted for armed robbery in St. Louis two years ago. Well, you know, it was not, he wasn't looking for that. Uh, that wasn't on his radar screen, but they nailed him. And that's the way the end of, uh, child, after you go through 14 to 17, at the end of 17, it's as if that little segment of the Joseph Tribes, as if the, the Holy Spirit grabs hold of the lapels of your coat and says, now look, is, is this your response? Is this where you're going to go? And we weren't looking for that. Uh, It just sneaks up on you uh, in the midst of all this dry stuff, and he nails you with it. So it's, um, I think sometimes looking at the overall structure of a whole bunch of material like that, dry as it may seem to be, helps us to see what the writer's driving at. And he's really trying to get Israel to take the right position.
1: Yeah, when Um, we come to these chapters, you've been talking about 14 through... 17 or 18 here i mean it's it's the kind of passage that when you're up front teaching and you're going to call on somebody to read it i mean they're going to go oh
0: <laughs> right oh
1: please don't call on me because it's all these names of tribes and uh, names of places that mm-hmm. are wholly unfamiliar to right. us and foreign and plus we just frankly we just think why do I need to know this? I don't right. need to know this kind of detail. So it right. raises a couple of questions in my mind, because if we agree that that this book, if we have to, understanding the land and possession of the land as an inheritance is a key part to understanding and teaching Joshua and and the fact that we know when this is God's word to us. Mm -hmm. there's got to be some good reasons he's giving us all of this detail. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. But so one question is, first of all, just as this is a very ordinary practical thing as being a teacher. But one thing I think about this passage is this seems to me to be one of those places where you pretty much have to put up a map. Mm -hmm. I mean, I Mm -hmm. I think it's oftentimes when we're teaching, once you put up a map, there's part of the room that just kind of goes, I, I didn't really want a history lesson. I didn't want a geography lesson. This is drier, or uh, do I really need to know it like this? I mean, just give me an inspirational story, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. would you agree that to really understand, really, the whole of Joshua, to get a picture of it, but especially this mm-hmm. book, do we need a map? And what do we do with it?
0: Yeah, I think we need a map. I think we have to be careful, maybe, that we don't give an overabundance of detail about the map. Okay, <laughs> yeah, what do we what uh, do can, effectively we with them. the map? That's why... Yeah. That's why I try to stress, like with 14 to 17, the way it's—the the, the, the preface, you might say, with Caleb and the tailpiece with the Joshua tribes, because you see how it's packaged and you see how he intends to use this whole glob of material to drive a point home to get you to respond rightly. But, yeah, we do—you do have to do some of that, uh, the maps— it's just that um, seems to me in a group setting, uh, you can't you can't go into the kind of detail that you might do it if you're muddling along in your personal study. Well, we just don't usually have the uh, quite as much time as as uh, we'd like to.
1: So must- as we're working our way through Joshua, so they they've he's made all of these assignments basically mm-hmm. by tribe and clan and such and. Then we, earlier you talked about the, of this very pivotal. Mm -hmm. Verse, uh, I believe in chapter 21, correct? Mm -hmm.
0: 43 to 45. Yes. Mm -hmm. Thus
1: the Lord gave to Israel, and you emphasize this word all, which is here, all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies has withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. Mm-hmm. So this isn't this isn't just a significant verse in the book of Joshua. It's it's a significant verse for us to mm-hmm. really go back you've mentioned a couple times uh to Genesis 12 mm-hmm. to Abraham. Mm-hmm. To talk about what right. we do with this verse. What, what the import that this has in the story of God's redemption of his people.
0: Here's a promise that Yahweh says he's going to bring to pass here this is an old promise hmm. depending on when you date the conquest etc etc and date abraham but you could say this is 600 years old this is an old promise and yet Yahweh's going to fulfill an old promise we say oh ho hum a uh, big deal Uh, I don't have that problem. I live in the New Testament age. No, no, you do have the problem. You've got old promises. I will come again and take you to be with myself. That's 2,000 years old. That's worse than what Israel had with Abraham's promise. You do live with that. But that's what everything's based on. Our whole faith is based on old promises. That you believe God is going to fulfill. Um, God has given
1: us a promise of a possession, hasn't He? Mm-hmm. You know, a possession right. of an inheritance, right? In a land,
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> right?
1: And um, really, isn't the essence of believing God believing that that's really true and living like we believe that's true?
0: Right, but we have the same tension, right? or even of worse. Time. Yeah, the, the, the time component there that, that they had in, 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 uh, with, with the promise to Abraham. And I think sometimes Christians make a kind of, we just tend to kind of think, oh, we don't have that kind of a problem. Well, well we do. We do. Uh, and we're called uh, to lean on the promiser uh, to fulfill it in his time.
1: We have been rescued from slavery to sin, like these people. Mm-hmm. Um, we have wandered through the wilderness of life in this world. We've been promised an inheritance in the land. What are we learning from the book of Joshua about what that means for us? What it's going to mean for us to actually t- do our part in mm-hmm. possessing what God has promised to give us. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it seems to me that the analogy, if you if you carried on into believing experience, is you know in the in the, I don't know as I would call this sanctification on the part of God's dealing with Israel here, but certainly in in the Christian life in terms of our own progress and holiness and so on, there is you know the Philippians two component God's at work in you. But you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling so you, you don't you don't denigrate either side of that you know, certainly what you see here as well you know yes god's the one bringing him through the jordan god's the one who even throw hailstones down on the southern coalition that came against them etc etc uh, but why are you so sluggish about possessing the land you know there. And, and, uh, um, it's almost divided up in two terms. The one is that, that verb take or capture. You take cities, you took, uh, Azekah, they took Machedah, they took, took, took. Uh, but but then you have to go back and possess or occupy Yarash <laughs> and that's what the book of Judges is about. They didn't possess or they didn't dispossess them. They they may take they they could take it, but then they would the 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 survivors would filter back and so on. So they had to follow up the victory. They didn't do that. Uh, and and that's the that's the urgency that comes through and already in the book of joshua there there's a there's a uh, a a kind of a a uh, torpor that hangs over israel they're not following up on the on the mm-hmm. gift god has given them
1: most of us end up having a number of people in our groups that we're teaching to when we're When we start talking about the land Mm -hmm. of Israel Mm -hmm. and Israel, you know, promising it to Abraham and taking immediately, Mm -hmm. maybe us, but certainly some of the people we're teaching, they're thinking immediately that, well, yeah, this was a promise forever. And, you know, in 1948, Mm -hmm. uh, Israel was made a nation again. And so finally, (laughs) God's promises are coming true, and yet mm-hmm. we're told here in Joshua, He's given them all that He promised mm-hmm. to them. So, mm-hmm. was it fulfilled then? Was it fulfilled in 1948? <laughs> yeah. um, is it still to be fulfilled? Yeah. This promise. How, how do we relate these very um, common uh, things people have about 1948 in the in Israel in the land now to what we read about in Joshua?
0: I think it's definitely decisively fulfilled. In, in Joshua, as in chapter 21, uh, that doesn't mean that uh, that is completely something could be decisively fulfilled and yet still have further fulfillment. Um, but the, the whole 1948 thing, I think you, I, I think people just need to put that in abeyance a bit, <laughs> because whatever is the case Easy for you to say. <laughs> yeah, well, well, no, I get hit with those questions too, uh, all the time. But, but um, my my concern is, if 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 that's the case, Israel is in the land. Then, but they are an unbelieving people. They are a secular people. They are not, by and large. I know there are believing Israelites, etc. But, but they are an unbelieving people and and uh that's you, you know and, and unless that's that's what needs to change you don't need to worry too much about the land affair, so many contemporary evangelicals don't realize that you have got Israel in unbelief and a very secular state, and so on that's not what god's that's not a fulfillment of god's design for israel um, the, 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 they, need, they need to come to faith.
1: You know, we had the Garden of Eden, God's original place, and God's people were disobedient, and therefore they were exiled mm-hmm. from the land. Yeah. Yeah. He's continuing his work. He's created this place for them, this promised land, mm-hmm. the land of milk and honey, very Edenic. Mm-hmm. And he's if we studied Deuteronomy before we got to Judges, Mm-hmm. We would have understood clearly that if they will obey him mm-hmm. in the land, they will live there yeah. and prosper and yeah. enjoy it. And from there, God's kingdom will spread. But, of course, you and I know the rest of the story after the book of Joshua. And we know mm-hmm. that they are not going to obey him and they will be ejected. Mm-hmm. And I guess then the question is, so then how how is this, how's this going to turn out?
0: Mm-hmm. And we
1: know that actually what happens is God sends a son who will be faithful. Mm-hmm. And he will be obedient. Yeah. And he, in a sense, um, he will be exiled too, but not because of his own mm-hmm. sin, but because of ours. Yeah. So that yeah. you and I, even though we don't deserve it, we can be planted in mm-hmm. the land. We can inherit everything that this promised land Was always pointing toward, yeah. Which is a great promise of the scripture,
0: yeah. And and I think Joshua underscores this inadequacy of Israel and and the danger of or or the the potential danger of their uh, of of. of of falling into the sort of thing that you see in the book of judges in in that very last chapter um, in in chapter 24 where he's saying he's calling them to serve Yahweh that is to be slaves of Yahweh he's going to do that whether they do or not and then when he calls them to that after reviewing all that Yahweh did in in his goodness toward them in his history. When he calls them to that, in in chapter 24, verses 16 and 18, they respond with an ideal response. (laughs) Boy, you couldn't (laughs) ask. It's just almost line upon line of what Joshua told them they needed to do. And he said... You're not able to serve Yahweh. Verse 19. You don't know what kind of God he is. He's a holy God. He's a jealous God and you apostatize from him. He won't forgive you and so on. But, but it was just almost a very antithesis of you know, it, you can't get out of your mind hearing Billy Graham's uh, uh, appeal at the end of his crusade. You know, if you came on a bus, they'll wait for you. <laughs> and Joshua says, if you came on a bus, you better catch the bus. They won't wait for you. Don't sign that card. Take it home with you. Put it up on the shelf. Think about it for a week. You know, it's a, you're not able to serve Yahweh. Well, it's just a, it's just a, a, uh, uh, kind of an MRI of their of their condition. And that's at the very end of the book of Joshua. This is the kind of stuff you're made of. And and such an antithesis to our kind of easy believism, even in the church. Um, boy. Um, it sounds that, to me like
1: the perfect lead up. You know, we talk about uh, finding or, you know, looking for Christ in the Old Testament. And you talked about the scarlet cord and the inappropriate way to do that. But isn't this an appropriate way that so much of the old Testament leads us to Christ where it presents here at the end of this incredible book, Joshua, a problem, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. a problem, right?
1: You must be faithful, but you can't, Mm -hmm. you're not going to be, you must choose to serve the Lord on this day. And yet we know you're going to fail. And, um, that leads us as teachers and it just sets up for us, don't you think, this mm-hmm. opportunity to say, here is a problem that can only be solved. Mm-hmm. A question that's left open is how's this ever going to happen that God really is going to redeem his people if they if they can't be faithful and were it leads us to say, when is someone going to come
0: mm-hmm. right? Right, who and, will be able
1: to truly uh, obey the Lord perfectly?
0: Yeah, and that that pattern, Nancy, I think I think you've really hit on the hit on that rightly. Uh, that that comes through in a lot of Old Testament. Uh, books you know you you think, for instance, at the end of nehemiah Nehemiah thirteen, well Nehemiah had gone through a bunch of reforms, he had to go back to Babylon for a while. He comes back these reforms that they had done they had even entered into a covenant with Yahweh that they 'd be faithful to do these things, and it had all gone to yuck it, it, you know and you th- and, and it just makes you throw up your hands and you say when, when Will there be a reform of the church? You might say hmm. that will really last. That will really stick. When when is there some some reformer or leader who can 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 make it happen and so on? So there's it's almost as like if a lot of the Old Testament narratives uh, end in a cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than a note of triumph
1: I suppose we could say Joshua ends with a cry for a greater Joshua mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which takes us into thinking about what it must have been like for Jesus who would have understood his name in Hebrew being mm-hmm. Joshua yeah <laughs> right uh, it's fascinating for me to think what it must have been like for Yeshua mm-hmm. to read the book of Joshua.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, talk to us about that. How, how, what do you think as we think about, I think about what Christopher Wright says in his book, knowing Jesus or the Old Testament. This sentence really stopped me short when I read it, that he said that when Jesus read the Old Testament, he saw the shape of his own identity.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good.
1: And what must it have been like for Jesus at the synagogue when they pulled out the scroll of Joshua? Hear this book by his own name how would he have seen his own identity in this book
0: well i think he would have probably may, maybe have seen a part of it in the role that that the historical joshua was called to fulfill in leading the people of god etc into their inheritance and that would be a whole a matter but i think it would be proper to say too that he would see some of some of his role spelled out for him, wouldn't he? In the need of the people, uh, like we just mentioned. The, the inability of Israel to really serve Yahweh with their whole heart. Well, who's going to fix that? You know, it seems to me there's a whole matter of, of uh, you could see the whole matter of his mission wrapped up in that as well.
1: Yeah. So it seems there that that um, understanding our inability, it just it leads us to the cross
0: mm-hmm.
1: and our desperate need for Christ. Yes. I wonder what the impact has been on you. You wrote a book on Joshua 20 years ago, You're getting ready to preach it now. Do you? Is, is Has there been a particular shaping influence in your life that the book of Joshua has had?
0: I'm not sure I've appropriated it well. What grabs me is, you know, this, this sounds kind of academic, is the doctrine of God in a book like Joshua. He just he's just so sometimes puzzling, uh, sometimes delightful, but always refreshing. And I think that's why. Uh, in dealing with Old Testament books, whatever section of the material we're dealing with, we always have to ask ourselves, how is this a revelation of God? If, if the book, if, if Scripture is giving us, if God gives us Scripture as a revelation of himself, then when I study it, I should want to see him there above everything else. I'm not saying that it doesn't have other instruction for us, but, but, but my, my key focus should be God himself. And so I, I would say there needs to be a, a theocentric um, view of of the scripture. Uh, but I, I think it's I think the most delightful thing about uh, about Joshua, so on, is is uh, the way God displays Himself. Uh, I think that would be premier.
1: I'd like for you to just close by speaking directly to our listeners, assuming that many of our listeners are. Sunday school teachers, women's Bible study leaders, um, men's small group leaders, discussion group leaders, they're uh, sitting at their kitchen table preparing to teach you the book of Joshua, feeling somewhat intimidating, wondering why they said they would do this. Mm -hmm. Um, Would you just give them perhaps a word of instruction, a word of encouragement as they dig in to study the book of Joshua and then prepare to give it out?
0: The thing that occurs to me right now, Nancy, is this. I think I would say what my dad said to me when I had to preach before presbytery when I was going to be ordained. Um, and you know, you have these fellows out there, over half of whom are ministers. He says, He says something like that, don't you worry about. About that, he said, You've studied that text and you know more about it probably than anybody else that's there because you've studied it most recently, so just go and do it. <laughs> 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 that doesn't, that's not a very good word perhaps, but if they give themselves to studying the text, say chapter one, for instance, whatever, uh, whatever section it is and they really pour themselves into it, uh, they're going to find, by, by the Lord's grace, they're going to find gold there uh, that their people in their Sunday school class or Bible study group need. And they just need to go do it. Um,
1: Is uh, perhaps the promise to Joshua for them to be strong and courageous, the Lord will not forsake you in your study, preparation, delivery
0: right right and and the fact that he tells Joshua in chapter one, verse eight, you know this book of the law, this Torah book, this instruction book, will not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, which means kind of a, probably to mutter in an undertone, you kind of you kind of read it out loud softly uh, but but it, it shall not depart. From your mouth that you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do and and yes, as they absorb as they absorb the scripture document and so on it's going it's not only going to give them something to teach, it's going to direct their life, they will become what they read um, which uh, maybe maybe is even more important. And having something to teach other people sometimes.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dr. Davis, for sharing your deep wisdom and study and teaching of the book of Joshua with us. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of The Gospel Coalition. Sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books, and tracts. Learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.